Hello and welcome to Bunker Gold. This week we've chosen an episode from December 2020, Is There Life After Power? Tales of Ex-Leaders. In this edition, Roz Taylor spoke with Giles Edwards about his book, The X-Men, How Our Former Presidents and Prime Ministers Are Still Changing the World. With Boris Johnson leaving number 10, could the actions of his predecessors help us guess what he'll do next? Welcome to the Bunker Daily. One day, you're one of the most powerful people in the world. The next, you're jobless. What the hell do you do now? And are you going to be any good at it? With me today is Giles Edwards, author of The X-Men, How Our Former Presidents and Prime Ministers Are Still Changing the World. Welcome to the Bunker, Giles. Thank you for having me, Ros. Lovely to be here. There are more ex-leaders than ever before, aren't there? That's a good thing for democracy, isn't it? It's definitely a good thing. And yes, there are. In, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, hesitate, I know this is a daily podcast about stuff happening now, but let me take you back just for a moment. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, there weren't that many X-Men, the people I'm writing about, the former presidents and prime ministers, because there weren't that many democracies. In large parts of the world, people died in office, either because they were autocrats or they were dictators or they'd taken over in military coups. But as democratisation spread around the world and that, frankly, their age of leaders let's leave aside America at this particular moment in time, got younger, you got more democracies, more elections, more people losing office and coming into office younger. It just meant there's this proliferation. There's absolutely tons of them now. And as you rightly say, it's a really good indication of the health of global democracy. In the course of researching this book, you've met quite a few ex-leaders in the flesh, but I take it it's a lot easier now to find them on Zoom. Well, funnily enough, I've actually always preferred to meet them in the flesh. And I have done some interviews during the lockdown on Zoom. I've spoken to a few of them. But I've been very lucky in that I've been able to go into uh, behind the scenes at a couple of their clubs. There's a couple of clubs that they can join when they leave office. And I've been invited to come in and observe what they get up to. And so I got a chance to meet tons of them all in one place. Like any good journalist, Lots of people who you want to speak to all in one place. Let's see if we can get in there. And that worked out very well for me. Uh, and much as people are uh, you know, available on Zoom, perhaps they've got more time on their hands. Perhaps this particular cadre of individuals I'm writing about spends less time traveling now. I've always found it better and more satisfactory to meet them in the flesh, actually. Yeah, I would agree. I remember watching Gordon Brown on an LSE event on Zoom early in the pandemic. And I have to say, he wasn't at his most compelling. (laughs) It must be hard to do Zoom webinars when you're used to the sound of, you know, standing ovations. And instead, you've just got people on mute. But talking about Gordon Brown, he was a very short-lived PM. He didn't have the chance to do much when he was actually in power, though, of course, he was in power during the financial crisis. What has he been up to since? Well, Gordon Brown's a really interesting example of somebody who kind of parlayed their experience in government. And I suppose if one of the lessons from my book is that people who are successful as X-Men. And what I mean by successful is that they achieve something meaningful, some kind of change afterwards. People can be very happy and not achieve anything. They could be very happy and do lots of stuff without a very enormous impact. But I'm interested, uh, or was interested when I started writing this book, in people who make an impact. And and Gordon Brown kind of has done that. He's done a number of things. Of course, uh, his involvement in the Scottish referendum campaign kind of cajoling all of the UK political parties to make the promise uh, just days before the 
referendum vote. But on an international level, he has run this organ, this um, kind of almost a think tank, a commission for the United Nations. He's a special envoy on global education. And he's run this uh, commission, which has come up with a big plan, done lots of research and come up with a big plan for how to finance global education, essentially. Uh, It's an enormous, sprawling document, tons of data and metrics in there. The bottom line is we did an absolutely enormous amount of money and the commission made some recommendations for how that money could be found. Yeah, because that wasn't universally admired, was it? Some people had quite strong criticisms of that project. Well, it did. I mean, they came up with this staggering figure of trillions of dollars of how money that's needed from low and middle income countries as the swollen portion of young people in the world kind of comes into the global education system, how much money it'll cost to educate them and educate them all well. Uh, and the criticisms are kind of twofold, really. One is that they came up with this quite small amount of money that they identified they that the global education system could fund, about £20 billion a year out of about £1.8 trillion. And people said, well, what about the rest? Where's that coming from? And where that's coming from is tax revenue. But it's not very clear whether the Commission has strong views on how low-income countries, without a very good track record in, in, in many cases of raising that kind of revenue, might best do it. And the second was how that 20 billion would be raised, which is essentially through loans. It's quite an innovative, low interest rate type of a loan. But nevertheless, it's loans and critics of the programme. And I should say lots of people supported it. Gordon Brown's great success really is in engaging many of the, I hate this word, but stakeholders in global education, whether that's at the UN or national governments or um, multilateral banks, is to bring all those people on board and get them behind his plan. But the critics of the plan said, well, crikey, the last thing low-income countries need is more debt. What they need is more income. So let's not be loaning more money just at a point where the, the debt, which, of course, Gordon Brown as Prime Minister was really responsible for forgiving a lot of that global debt. Let's not suddenly put some more debt on low-income countries. Yeah, given the state they're in now with debt, it will be interesting to see where that ends up. Before Brown, we had Tony Blair, of course, who started out as the Quartet Envoy. Remind us what that was and how it worked out. Yeah, so the Quartet is a combination of the United Nations, the European Union, the United States and Russia. And the Envoy is a figure who is set up really to do, and it's a really misunderstood role, actually, which I think is a lot of the reason why people thought Blair was unsuccessful, as many people did in that role. The role of the Quartet Envoy is to generate economic growth in the Palestinian territories in Palestine. And Blair was somewhat successful in that. But as critics of his and of the role pointed out, you know, it's a very difficult job because you are inevitably subordinated to a political process. You are, uh, you know, economic growth, particularly in Palestinian territories, particularly in Gaza, is so subject to external factors to do with the peace process that it's very difficult to see the two as separate. And so Blair faced criticism both for not kind of generating peace, which it wasn't his job, and for not generating economic growth because peace wasn't forthcoming. It it seems to me it was a kind of nightmarish job from the beginning. And I'm not sure 
it's a job at which it is possible to succeed, absent a larger peace process. But anyway, he's regarded as not to have, not to have, not to have succeeded. Let's talk about some of the women, because although the book is mm. called The X-Men, as you point out in the introduction, there are some women who used to be world leaders too. Who stands out for you among those women? Yes, I mean, I chose the title of The X-Men, basically because I couldn't resist it, <laughs> because it's about... Because I, I sort of come up with this group... I, I see this group of former leaders as a bit like a kind of third force, a bit like, in other words, Marvel's X-Men. So forgive that, forgive that. Um, <laughs> and obviously some of the X-Men are women as well. And, you know, there has been, some people have commented that you should have called it the X-Men and women, and that's a fair enough point, but I didn't for reasons I think your audience will probably understand. But you're absolutely right. There's tons of super interesting women um, who've been presidents and prime ministers, fewer than the men, because there's been fewer who've been presidents and prime ministers. But I was lucky enough to speak to quite a few of them. Tremendously insightful. I guess a couple of the ones I particularly enjoyed speaking to. One is Mary Robinson, the former Irish president, who went on to be the United Nations first um, or second, I think, commissioner, high commissioner for human rights. You know, she's done a tremendous amount since leaving the, the office of the Irish presidency. And there's a really interesting, you can draw in a really interesting strand, I think, through all of her work from, if you read her, memoirs right back to when she was a senator in the Irish Senate through her time at the UN, the various NGOs she ran after that and her time at the elders and the various other organisations she, she thought worked very intensively on climate change and the justice aspect of climate change. Um, her work, for example, on child marriage is really in, influential and interesting through the elders. Uh, another is Helen Clark, the former New Zealand prime minister, who went on to be the number two at the UN as the head of the UN Development Programme. And she now has this absolutely enormous kind of career of vast number of things that she's involved in. And, you know, one of my kind of, I suppose, underlying assumptions in the book was that the fewer things you do, the kind of the better you do them, essentially, the more energy you can devote to one or another thing. And Helen Clark completely <laughs> disagreed with that. And I sat down with her and put this assumption and she was like, no, 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 no. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. A, a, a absolutely enormous number of things she keeps a quote-unquote profile on. And she's just trying to do what she can where she can. And good luck to her. I mean, it's a tremendously kind of worthwhile set of things. And then the third, I suppose, I pick out of the of the, the women who I thought was really interesting is Vara Vika Freiberger, the former Latvian president. She's got this, um, I don't know if you've heard her speak, but she has this terrific habit when she speaks of giving a really long historical analogy. And you feel like, where on earth is this going? And in the end, what it does is it ends up exactly where uh, some, somebody giving a short answer to a question would have started. But with this rich historical detour, with all this colour and flavour and sense of who she is and what's brought her to this point, um, and she's influential, I think, and, and, and listened to because she is, she's been styled as kind of iron lady, a sort of Thatcher-like figure in terms of standing up against Russian aggression, I think, really clearly. She's very outspoken about Putin in particular. And I met her, uh, four or five years ago back when the Ukrainian, um, war in Eastern Ukraine was really at its height. And she is very outspokenly uh, you know, in favour of the Ukrainians supporting the Ukrainian position from a position of having been an EU leader. 
So she used those connections to, to advocate forcefully with her own background, having been exiled from the old Soviet Union and come back after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's a kind of moral power behind what she was saying and the stories that she was able to tell about Russian power. I'm fascinated by what Angela Merkel will end up doing when she mm. when she finally leaves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's another candidate who can go on and do lots of different things. I guess one of the questions is, what is it that she wants to do? You know, some of her successors have sort of just not quite slunk away, but not made a huge impact in global public affairs afterwards. And there's an interesting kind of sidebar here, which is that people who speak English typically don't, people who speak English, sorry, typically have more global opportunities, um, particularly those who speak English well, uh, whether it's at the European Union level uh, or in in Africa, at the African Union level uh, or the UN. But a lot of the people I spoke to, um, for them, there was a period after leaving office. And Blair is very unusual in this regard, actually, uh, in that he kind of jumped in immediately. He had things set up, ready to go to. Most of them take a period to kind of consider a period of consolidation to figure out, well, what it is, what is it that they want to do? And I remember speaking to Kim Campbell, the former Canadian prime minister about this, and she's, as lots of them do, wrote a book. And she said for her, it was really, she didn't describe it as therapeutic, but I interpreted it in that way. It allowed her to put in her own mind, tell herself as much as her readers, a story about her life and what was consistent in her life and therefore looking back to look forward. And, you know, Merkel may well have ideas about what she wants to do. She'd certainly be welcomed in by many of the groups and organisations I spent time with. Um, uh, but, but she might want to spend some time figuring out where her energies can best be deployed before she makes the leap. Another f- former female leader, Theresa May, was recently very critical of Boris Johnson over Brexit. And David Cameron, Yes, and as another leader, weighed in to say that former leaders shouldn't criticise their successors publicly. I'm not sure whether you agree with him on that. Is it ever useful to be critical of your of your successors? I don't know, Ros. What do you think? <laughs> my, my, my sense is that it's probably a sense of a sign of loss of influence in private. Yeah, I think it kind of is often born out of frustration, and I mean, it's it's usually seems to be a waste of time. Certainly, over Brexit, it seems to have been a waste of time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I agree. I mean, I spoke to, before he died, he's, he's he passed away a couple of years ago now, but Malcolm Fraser, the former Australian Prime Minister, who was another kind of Thatcherite figure, uh, intensely, contra- intensely controversial figure in Australia, uh, for reasons that any Australian listener will understand. And you know, when he left office, he was kind of the vanguard of the right, detested on the left. And over time, he, his argument always was that his party moved away and he didn't, he didn't move which is what people always say, isn't it? I think there's some truth in it. He ended up essentially exiled from his own party, uh, you know, really detested in the way that perhaps that Edward Heath was by by the time he uh, passed away. But when I asked him about this, uh, he said, well, you always offer that advice in private. It's always more influential in private. And really, when you do it in public, it's because you've lost the ability to influence in private. And I suspect that's probably where Theresa May is now. I wanted to ask you about Bill Clinton, partly because I I have a strong memory of him speaking at a Labour Party conference in Blackpool 
in 2002. It was the one where he introduced himself as um, Bill Clinton, Arkansas CLP, and they just loved him. They loved him. That was not long after he left office. And his speech was amazing. I don't think I'll ever see such a successful orator over there. But when you're out of office, how useful is it to be a fantastic orator as he can be? I think it's useful up to a point. So I think it slightly depends what it is you want to do as well. So you know, I think Clinton is a really interesting case study in that he left office in very high approval ratings, disgraced himself on the way out of the door by pardoning a fugitive financier, which it was very unseemly and unpleasant. Um, and he later really rehabilitated himself through the Clinton Global Initiative, the Clinton Foundation. He did tons of amazing stuff. Uh, he set up what became the hottest ticket in global philanthropy. Billions and billions of dollars were pledged for good causes through his offices. And he totally rehabilitated himself uh, to the extent that by 2012, and I, the, I mean, I've seen him speak a number of times. I've been lucky. But I saw him in 2012 on the, the last weekend before the presidential election. Uh, I was in Washington covering those elections for the BBC. And... Clinton and Obama spoke together at Obama's final campaign rally in Northern Virginia. And the audience, you know, the audience were very, very appreciative to see President Obama. But they loved Bill Clinton. There was a qualitative difference between the warmth of the reception. They loved him. He touched something in the Democratic Party soul that Obama didn't at that time. And, and Obama at that time called him the explainer in chief. Because he had then, as you will have seen him in 2002, had that ability to communicate complicated ideas in a really, really simple way. And that's really, 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 really useful. It, does it help you get in the room? Does it help bring people together so that you can persuade them to do the things you want to do? Unquestionably. And then, of course, Me Too happened and 2016 presidential election happened where Clinton again sort of embarrassed himself on his wife's campaign and said unwise things. But for me, it's the me too. I, I just can't. I, it just seems to me that there's been such a reconsideration within the left of democratic politics in the United States about all of those allegations about Bill Clinton, not just about Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky, but some of the more kind of incendiary allegations. People are looking at back at that now going, oh, and seeing it in a new light, I think. Talking of um, presidents who... Uh, tend to stray. Now we know he's finally agreed to go. What will Trump do, do you think? <laughs> That's anybody's guess, isn't it? I'll tell you what I will say, which is that I think most of the people and places I spent time with wouldn't open their arms to him. You know, The group of people I've been writing about, from the left and the right of the political spectrum, are the people who created the modern world, the world we live in now, which for all that there's challenges to it is still, a, as we talked about at the beginning, about the, you know, the growth of this pool of people. It's a democratised, globalised, liberal world. But those values, which I think in lots of ways have felt a bit kind of mushy, like mushy language, the kind of mushy language that is in mission statements of global organisations, uh, it suddenly felt a bit less mushy as those some of those values have been challenged, particularly the democratic stuff has been challenged by autocrats. But that world is not going to be a welcoming world for Donald Trump, because particularly on the globalization front, he clearly doesn't he isn't in favor of that stuff. And he's been he's been an outspoken 
opponent of some of those values. Having said all of that, I'm not sure he'd want to go and hang out in those circles anyway. Uh, so, I'm, so I'm not sure there's going to be much love loss on either side. What he does within the US, within US politics, I mean, I guess we'll find out in the next couple of months whether he's going to signal an intention to run in 2024. Whether or not he does, he's clearly going to be a commanding presence in the Republican Party for the next four years. You know, people who've been presidential candidates, let alone recently departed presidents, remain. They are kind of the titular head of the Republican Party. He's likely to have many of his key allies still in key positions in the Republican Party. And so his ability to dictate the terms of American public debate and discourse, and therefore kind of, to some extent, global public debate and global public discourse, will remain significant. He's going to be a a, a big figure. I mean, my book really is about people who kind of leave elective politics. And it's not at all clear to me that Trump will yet leave elective politics. We had a bunker podcast last week with Ian Dunn talking to Ian Dale, the political commentator. Mm-hmm. And he said Johnson would be much happier as an ex-PM than he is as a PM. And I can envisage him going back to journalism because it's obvious, but it's hard to imagine him being driven by a passionate belief in changing anything, is it? So I wonder if there will be a cause that he associates himself with once he leaves office. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting proposition. I will say that people have said that about all sorts of people. People said Obama would enjoy being a former president more than a president. And I haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of people about this, but I did ask... um, this question to one of the former Canadian prime ministers. And what he said is, you know, and lots of them, I'll say this as well, lots of them do say, and whether you believe them or not, this other matter, that they much prefer being out. They're very happy. They're content. They're glad they did it, but they're glad and happy to be out of power. But Paul Martin, the former Canadian prime minister, said to me that you could get, he said, the value of all that work, all the time spent getting to the head of the, the country, to national leadership, you go on all these endless kind of rubber chicken circuits, all of the time spent campaigning in hopeless by-elections, all of that stuff. He feels, he said, on the way up, you sometimes feel, goodness me, is it worth it? But he said, you can get more done in 15 minutes as prime ministers than you can in 15 months as a former prime minister, as an unparalleled ability to get things done. And so I'm always slightly wary when people say, they prefer to be a former prime minister than to be a prime minister if that person wants to achieve things. And this is the key question. So if there are things which, whenever that time comes, Boris Johnson still thinks he has to achieve that he hasn't achieved in office, then I suspect he won't enjoy being a former prime minister more. I suspect he'll find it very frustrating as Bluntly, some of the people we talked about in this conversation have clearly felt frustrated looking on this year. I mean, you, if you've seen any interviews with Gordon Brown this year, there's a, he's kind of fizzing with nervous energy, like, goodness me, let me at it. And the same with Tony Blair and the same with Theresa May. I think slightly less so with David Cameron because we kind of haven't seen him speaking out, but certainly with those other three. And so if, if Boris Johnson, if there are things... L- that Boris Johnson doesn't do and achieve as prime minister that he still wants to achieve, I think he'll find being a former prime minister frustrating in that regard. However, will he, as many of the men and women I've spent time with, 
love not having to give interviews to the likes of you and me, not having to kind of answer for where that after dinner money came from. I suspect you'll probably quite appreciate the kind of lack of formal scrutiny that comes with it, the ability to have more time to yourself. But, you know, I think a lot of these people find it find the inability to get things done and the additional challenges very, very frustrating if they're driven people. And, you know, you spoke to them, Ross. A lot of them are very driven people. Giles, that was fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. The X-Men is out now in Bite Back Publishing. Join us tomorrow for another Bunker Daily. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And we're excited to announce that you can now buy Bunker merchandise to stick in your loved one's stocking this Christmas. Just go to podmarket.co.uk. Thanks for listening and check back in with us tomorrow and every weekday for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.